class two today. I, I neglected to put class one on the website for those for, who are requesting it, but um, oh well. After like two or three classes, I kind of put a, a, hard, a hard stop on the joining thing. As I, as I mentioned last time, like, I, um, all, in fact, all of you are already communing. I had these conversations with you individually. So like for, to be in fellowship with us, you kind of know, know what we're about insofar as you have heard, and you haven't heard me say anything shockingly uh, contrary to your view of the scriptures, you know? And if you were to hear that, you should run or call me on it and then run or make sure you like sniff around. Is this guy legit? Is he talking crazy? Um, but it, so right now you're, you're, you're in fellowship with what we're teaching. But then bringing in the mem- membership, I mean, there's, there's multiple reasons for that. But one, one big one is just by, by the left-hand kingdom, if you will, like human jurisdiction of things, like to have the paperwork, you're, you're, you're a member of Bethany. Um, Pastor Barton's put it in a good way. I was talking to him earlier today, and he's saying how there is something, it's like this, there's this human dynamic that's really like unspiritual. Your joy, it's called, we, the Bible doesn't talk about members in the same way that we do, because we, we, we confuse it with like members of a club, and you members join weird things. Uh, but being members of a church, you get your name on a paper, and there's memberships are transferred, and numbers are counted, and all this weird stuff that's very, in a way, non spiritual, not biblical. But the, the spiritual component to it is that it actually takes, it takes something of you to say, I'm joining myself publicly to this confession. So it's not, this isn't done in secret. It's I'm, I'm saying I believe what this church confesses and I make their, this confession my own confession. And the hard part, I cut myself off from other confessions, right? So it's hard to say, it's hard to have your cake and eat it too. It's like, so like the, to pick on the, the Pope, uh, it can't be both ways. It can't be the Pope and like the Lutheran confessions call the Pope the Antichrist. <laughs> if you read the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, you can read that. And the Pope is called the Antichrist, which is, it, it was going to be problematic. Do you remember back when, um, who was running for president? Like the second, when Obama was running the second time, I forget the guys who were up against him. One was the Mormon dude. Yeah, then there was some like, in the, in the preliminaries, there's a lady, like from, I forget where she was even from, conservative woman. She was Lutheran. I think maybe, maybe Bachman. Yeah. She's, so she's like, I think Wells or something like this. It was going to be a problem. Like I sniffed it out early on because it, like think about how easy it would be to smear her as a Lutheran to all of the Catholic voting base. Like if you lose the Catholics, it's not good for you, right? Uh, so all they had to do was, so she's, she's a Lutheran. So I mean, she, she confesses these documents to be the proper exposition of God's word. And here's what it says about the Pope. And they rip it out of context, but that doesn't matter, right? The damage would be done. The Pope is the Antichrist. <laughs> Catholics gone, right? Uh, let's begin. I'm going to, re- so this is hymn 590. If you'll open, I mentioned the opening to your hymnal, hymn 590. And just a quick note about the, well, let's, let's, I'll, I'm going to read this hymn as, as a prayer. And then I'll explain something interesting about your hymnal here. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
baptized into your name, most holy, O Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I claim a place, though weak and lowly, among your saints, your chosen host, buried with Christ and dead to sin, your spirit now shall live within. My loving Father, here you take me to be henceforth your child and heir. My faithful Savior, here you make me the fruit of all your sorrows share. O Holy Spirit, comfort me when threatening clouds around I see. My faithful God, you fail me never, your promise surely will endure. O cast me not away forever if words and deeds become impure. Have mercy when I come defiled, forgive, lift up, restore your child. All that I am and love most dearly, receive it all, O Lord, from me. Let me confess my faith sincerely. Help me your faithful child to be. Let nothing that I am or own serve any will but yours alone. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this uh, wonderful Reformation era hymn really captures the theology of baptism in a concise, succinct way. It's quite a beautiful hymn. And this, we're going to talk about being baptized into the Lord's name quite a bit today and really over the next, I think the next couple weeks. I already lost my schedule, but I'll talk about the name. I'll talk about the name uh, continuously because the thing is, we begin the divine service in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We actually end the service with the benediction to which the Lord has joined his name. We were always making the sign of the cross during the service, whether you do it physically or, or receive it um, from the pastor's hand. We're always referencing, glory be to the Father, to the Son. What's with all this name? Why do we keep saying it over and over again, right? So I'm just gonna, what's, what's happening when we say that name? So we'll come back to that. But while I get your hymnal open, look at the very top, just so you can navigate this mysterious book called the hymnal. At the very top, um, above the number, you see the, the theme, holy baptism. And so the, the, the hymnal is actually grouped, the hymns are grouped up according to theological theme. And it's actually pretty helpful that if you, when the hymns first start, if you flip back to whatever the first hymn, is. oh, by the way, there's not, there's not a hymn number one. It actually starts with the Psalms. So the hymnal starts with the Psalms. And so like, if you say, turn to page 23, if I say, turn to Psalm 23, you'd say, what page is Psalm 23 on? I'd say 23. So you look at the front of the book, you're looking for, there's not page numbers, you just follow the Psalms. And then the numbers of the liturgy pick up actually after the Psalms, kind of when they ran out of Psalms, then the services start on 151, the divine services and so forth. Well, the hymnals pick up after the prayers and the services, the hymns, I should say, with the first hymn being 332, Savior of the Nations Come by Ambrose of Milan, oh, sorry, 331. The advent of our king. So advent, when you think about your lectionary, the, the seasons of the church year, advent starts the church year, and so advent starts the hymn order. And so it tracks through, we'll talk about the lectionary kind of throughout, or the, the season of the church year, but from advent goes into Christmas. So if you, if you just kind of quickly flip through, it goes advent right into Christmas. You're like, well, it comes after Christmas. Well, I'll keep flipping. There's Epiphany, then Lent, then Easter, then Pentecost, and then when you're, then the end times, in fact, sandwiched between Pentecost is the Holy Trinity. If you remember Athanasian Creed, Trinity Sunday, we have a couple hymns dedicated to Trinity Sunday. And then this theme of the end times, which is the, the theme of the end of the church year. It'll actually be like the last three Sundays of the church year, or like those really shocking 
uh, like parables of Jesus, the sheep and the goats and like the weeping and gnashing of teeth and kind of this like, ah, and like that's the week that you finally got your non-Christian neighbor to come to church with you and hoping for a, a gospel message. And it's like this really jarring. Uh, in fact, the sheep and the goats are pictured in the stained glass window behind the, uh, behind the altar here with the sheep looking up at Jesus and the goats looking everywhere else but at Jesus. Um, but then, so after you finish the, after you finish the um, end times section, the church year ends, and then naturally it begins again with Advent. Well, as the hymns kind of continue, of this uh, section of feasts and festivals. So church kind of remembers certain festivals through the year. And then we get into these really cool theme sections. So Redeemer, hymns about Jesus redeeming us. Justification, the being declared righteous, a kind of Christ alone. And then the word of God. So how is this being declared righteous by Christ alone, how does it make its way to you? Well, God's word and wherever he places his word. So then holy baptism, then Lord's Supper, it gets, and then the Christian life and sanctification, on and on with the themes. But so if you're, when you're trying to think through, there's a theological placement of the hymns, which is quite intentional, according to where they fall within the Christian life. Um, so if you will, flip, uh, since you got your hymnal on your lap, flip to divine service. I think we're doing divine service. We're doing one or two right now. Two. Up to one, fit 167. Page 167. And for you, for you uh, life, lifelong Lutherans, if you're used to the... Um, if you remember growing up with the LW, the Wells had their own hymnal. I can't remember the name. They had a kind of joint hymnal between, they had TLH for a while, and I can't remember what they had. In the, in the 70s, there was a joint effort among the Lutherans to unite behind one hymnal. And the Commission on Worship got together and they put together this hymnal. And then like last minute, I have one here. Sorry, if I'd have known. Oh. So the, the Lutherans bailed last minute because the ELCA was trying to push like gender neutral language, even though it was back in the early 80s. The Lutherans bailed, the Missouri Center Lutherans bailed and kind of crafted our own hymnal. So the ELCA went on to form a green one, which is, I think it's just the LBW, the Book of Worship, which is green. And the, the Missouri Center Lutherans made a blue, a royal blue one. It had like all these weird components to it, including it had... Like it had hymns in the back and, and liturgy in the front, but they were both numbered the same way. So you had like, you had a hymn 23 and a page 23 in the front. So you'd say, imagine it from like a non, a, like a seeker or a visitor perspective. You walk, you stumble into, here's John stumbling into a Lutheran church. And then and the pastor would say, all right, turn to page 100. And so you naturally, you open the book and then the front there's one, two, five, and you're okay, where's 100 naturally fall? And then you're, you're in the liturgy. You're not in the hymn. Congregation starts singing Amazing Grace or something. You're like, what's going on? What was the stupidest idea ever? So finally, they, fi they fix that glitch, a little oversight. Well, we're in divine service one uh, and two are kind of, there's a lot of similarities there. It's a Vatican II move. Um, this is the, this liturgy is, is kind of common to um, most of Christianity, like the, the Book of Common Prayer from the Reformed folks. The, um, the Catholics would all be on the same general format of following this general liturgy. And to have a liturgy is, isn't necessarily 
like the reverence and the, like the piety that some super liturgical churches might have, such as Bethany with the smells and the bells and all the rest. To have a liturgy is just to do the same thing all the time. You, we all have a liturgy. Like, like you, you brush your teeth in the morning or at night, whatever. Like, so there's a routine of what you do. Kids, it's very important to establish a liturgy in their life, what they wake up, what they do, how, how to order their days. And there is, a, there is a comfort and a peace that comes with that. It's like parenting number one. The kids have to have, that's the word, structure. And when that structure is broken, chaos ensues for the kid. I mean, the kid can't really process it, but the kid kind of breaks down. And so there's something to it as a parent having like when summer ends and school starts and extracurriculars begin, you can kind of start to lock in. All right, this is when this, the school is here. We take the kids here. We have these things and, and the, everything kind of locks in. And there's, a, there's an order to it that there is a, and there's kind of a peace there to it. And then you don't have to think about it as, as much anymore. Don't worry, the peace will come. <laughs> but so you think about by, by the spring, it's like you're not even thinking about it anymore. It's the same, you know, you know what we're doing, you know where we're going when, you know who's taking, you figured out all the kinks in the road along the way and there's a, peaceful, there's a peace to it. So it is with the liturgy, when you're coming to worship and we're worshiping the same, generally the same way, a little minor components will change here and there, such as what readings we're, we're hearing, what, what hymns we select. But overall, we come in, we begin with the Lord's name, we confess our sins, we sing a psalm, we sing the Gloria, we hear the readings, and we can expect to hear a sermon based on those readings, one would hope. And in case the sermon's terrible, we're gonna confess the creed, just to make sure we mop up all the bad preaching with good preaching. And we hear all the hymns, which are also tightly connected to the readings as well, so that the hymns sing the, sing the faith, again, in the, absence of poor, in the absence of good preaching. The pastor is always surrounding himself with good voices to make up for his lack of uh, uniqueness. But then we have the Lord's Supper. So you know what you're getting there. The forgiveness of sins is coming at you in so many different ways. You can't, you can't miss it. And then we hear the benediction, we're on our way, right? So there's a, there's a peace to that, to the expectation of what one's receiving in church. All we're gonna talk about today is at the very top of 167, and, and all the divine services begin the same way, the, the name, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and the little cross that's there in the book is reminding me to make the sign of the cross. Reminds us why we're here, but what's with that name? What's with that name? Well, you want to set that, set that book aside and let's think about the name a little bit. Now at the, top, at the top of your handout where it says the front would be church making alive the dead, uh, it's, what, it's what we're about. It's what the Lord is doing here. And I just kind of grabbed Ephesians 2 as an example for this. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So just like everybody else, we're born into this, the wrath of God, dead. Doesn't say dying, doesn't say mostly dead, like in the Princess Bride, right? <laughs> but dead. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, what? Dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You are dead in your sin, dead in the wrath of God, dead. So the Greek word here, nekros, it's, it's this wonderful picture of the armadillo on the side of the road that's like the guts are kind of spilled out. And in our humanity, we often think, it's like you, someone sent me a meme of like an armadillo with a, somebody had like pulled over and put a poster, like a stand-up poster next to the armadillo that said, get well soon. Obviously, he's not going to be getting well soon. He's dead. But this like, you can't even, you can't motivate him to get better. You can't fix him. That's necros. It's, it's uh, stinking, decomposing, broken down, unable to get up. That's the starting point for where we are before our Lord. And it's a, it's a crucial starting point. It has to do with baptism. We're gonna talk about it all the time. Uh, I'm gonna to, to spend more time talking about the name, hopefully today. But we, uh, baptism is this way too. We baptize babies because they are just as necros, this is dead as we are. In fact, the babies are better at showing it because we kind of like, we think we can kind of logic and reason our way out of this thing. And uh, like, oh, ultimately I have, kind of, I have, I have a say in, in, in my salvation and how I can save myself and pull up. I'm an American, I like to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and the baby does nothing. But be dependent. And if, and if, the, if someone's out there to take care of the baby, it will die. It has to be fed. It has to be made alive, kept alive. So that's our stance before the Lord is being dead and then being made alive. So we have to start with that confession of our own death before we can even appreciate the life. And most, most people, and often unfortunately many Christians as well, operate with the assumption that I am in fact alive, but handicapped, slightly wounded, injured, but I'm mostly alive. That is, I just need to be strengthened, fixed a little bit, guided in the right direction. So think about how that plays into church. So if you are just slightly fractured, then you're, you're coming to church as one who's wanting to be slightly improved. Or if I'm, if I'm just got some bad habits I need to overcome, then I'm coming to church to help my, my, my bad habits be overcome, to be motivated to make better decisions. Um, or for the unregenerate, the, for those who are like not, not confessing to be a Christian, it's almost as if a person walks in the door as a free agent uh, in the same way that you and I would walk into a, onto a car dealership, expecting to be harassed by some well-intentioned salesman just trying to make his commission for the month, telling us all the things we want to hear. Ultimately, we, ha- we are going to make a decision that day on I'm going to buy a car or not. And if I buy a car, I'm going to buy you know, one of the ones he's going to try to pitch to me. But there's a decision to be made. His job is to help obviously motivate me toward making 
what he feels to be a good decision. Convince me to buy the Toyota within the Toyota. Like, find the Toyota that works well for me. Oh, I'm too big for the Corolla. Let's put you inside of a Land, whatever you, what is that thing you drive? Land Rover? Put me inside of a, a Tundra. By the way, if any of you ever, I don't encourage gambling, but if you ever do like win the lottery and think, you know what, I want to buy Pastor a new car, the Toyota Tundra would be my truck of preferred choice. Uh, Mandy says, I can't get one until the kids are all out of the house. She's like, that's not, that's not an economical vehicle. It doesn't make sense. It won't fit inside the garage. All these, all these perfectly logical reasons. And then I'm like, but I want one. Anyway, uh, so you walk, on the, you walk on the car dealership and he's trying to convince you to make a decision. So you're, you're a decision-making free agent. So if I'm in the same way, when a person comes to church, if the person is not necros, is not dead, then the, what the church is trying to do is take somebody who's able to make a decision and convince them to make the right one. Door number one or door number two. Not picking a door is also a choice, right? So a person comes to church and they're like, and I'm trying to sell to them the Jesus option, right? Then I can either do it well or not. And it assumes that they're a free agent in this. And, I, and it puts then the burden also on me of trying to like make it, make it attractive to them or palatable or, or somehow understandable, accessible. But it, but it has them ultimately making a decision. And then from that, trying to encourage them, or if they've made the decision for Jesus, reminding them, you know what, you didn't make a decision for Jesus. And if you really meant it in your heart, then wouldn't your life be getting better and better? Which puts, puts your focus back on yourself. Is my life getting better and better? But instead, what we're saying when we come before the Lord as those who are dead is we actually don't have the ability to save ourselves. We cannot choose good. If, it's, if I'm left up to my own, I am the, the dead armadillo on the side of the road. But the Lord Jesus comes to those who are dead, revives them to life, and then sets them out to live in joy and freedom to love their neighbor and bear good fruits and so forth. And as we go about this life, we sin and we find ourselves in death and he calls us back and regenerates us and forgives our sins. But that puts us then before the Lord and really in our worship experience, to use that, I hate that word, but in, in, our, in the divine service, it's, we're about making dead people alive again. We're not trying to sell anything. And that's a helpful starting point when you start wondering, why do we... It's kind of a depressing way to start. I just invited all these people here. Here we are, here at church, and you've seen all the church on the TV, and you know, Joel Osteen, Billy Graham, whoever the, whoever the pop star of the day is. Seems like pretty exciting stuff. You come to church, and right away, I, a poor, miserable sinner. <laughs> what? Well, because that's actually what we all know to be true. We actually know our sin. And I'm not trying to motivate you or excite you enough to overcome it on your own, but we're rather coming before Lord, the Lord and confessing what we know to be true. So in the church, the Lord is about making, making dead things alive, making, making condemned things saved, making cast out things holy. Obviously, the way that he did that, how, does, how did Jesus ultimately... Um, save the world? How did Jesus save the world, Dragu? Died on the cross. Confirmation 101. I won't make it 3D because it won't turn out symmetrical. 
Jesus dies on the cross. About what year? No. About 33 approximately, depending on where we, how we date his birth according to uh, Pontius Pilate. I mean, there's remarkable discoveries continue to be made to help pinpoint his birth and so, far, so forth with, with uh, Bethlehem and all this. Anyway, approximately 33 AD. Were you there? As that terrible hymn goes, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Whoa! <laughs> it's always like the old ladies with the natural vibrato. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm always sitting in front of that lady when I was little, like, what's going on? So here we are, 2022, quite a bit removed from the cross, where Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, right? So if he died on the cross for the sins of the world, of all times and all places, everyone just goes to heaven. So what's no need for the church or the Bible or anything else. It just, he just took care of it and didn't need to tell us. It's like someone paid off our debt. It's like, it's like the president just waived all of our college loans and didn't tell us too soon. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's as though all of our mortgages were automatically forgiven, but no one actually told us that, right? That would be the word for the heresy there is universalism that Jesus, that everyone goes to heaven without, like it doesn't really matter what we do in this life or good or bad, good or evil, whatever. Jesus' death on the cross kind of forgave everyone. It doesn't matter whether or not they have heard the gospel. We know that's not true because of the sheep and the goats and all the countless uh, proclamations of Jesus to the contrary. So if that's not true, then how does, if I wasn't at the cross and I wasn't actually covered in the blood of Jesus, why do I know that I'm saved? How do you know that this cross event in 33 AD did anything for you? How does it get to you? Yes, yeah, so baptism, and let's break down baptism a little bit. Baptism is just plain water. Oh, of course not. What's this washing a baby, screaming baby's head with water do any good? What's the point? What's, what's, what makes baptism tick? As we learned in the catechism, we'll get there. It's not just plain water, but it is the word of God. The word of God. And in fact, you, got your, you have your hymnal there in front of you. I think the catechism is there. Flip to 300. You think, I've been using this hymnal my entire pastoral career, and I still never remember where anything is. 320, 325, 325, which was actually the year of the Council of Nicaea. So maybe I'll remember that now. Where, so the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD is when they started putting together the Nicene Creed that we confess every Sunday. Anyway, what's that? It's a place. Where they joined the, all the pre, all the pastor, the bishops, the, the district presidents of you all got together and said, "This is what we're saying as a Christian. This is what the Bible says as a Christian, and this is what we're all saying. We're, are you saying the same? We're all saying the same thing. So let's write it down. And this, if you say this, when we say we're a Christian, we're, we mean this. If you mean something else, that's fine. But you don't. You're not in the same working. It's like with us with Mormons." 
they say they're Christian. We say we're Christian, but when you push them on, it's a different confession. That's why the creeds are so essential. We'll get there when we talk about the creeds, unless we're still talking about baptism. Uh, 325, the sacrament of holy baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command. That is, he said, do it this, and combined with God's word. What word? The word when he says Judas hung himself? No, the word that he said to you. So what is that word? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, therefore go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so baptism then is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's the word that he said to use when we're baptizing. Now, so baptism is not just water, but it is ultimately, what's the thing? What's the main, the main component in, that separates water and, and baptism from all other water? It's the word of God. So that's how you know. That's how you know the cross event from 33 AD does anything for you today. So the word of God is actually preached to dead things and makes them alive again. Faith cometh by hearing, Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So the word of God is preached and wherever God takes his word and he sticks it to stuff. And whatever he sticks it to stuff, we call it, I mean, the fancy church word is sacrament. Sacra just means holy. So it's just holy things. And they're holy only because God has attached his word to them and set them to do stuff. In fact, sacramentum is the word for mysterium in the, uh, in the New Testament, pastors are called stewards of the mysteries of God. Steward is like we're, we're entrusted with these things to dole them out to God's people. And so mysterium in the Greek translates into Latin sacramentum, and that's where we get the word sacrament. But it's a scary word because it's associated with the Catholics. And we all know everything the Catholics do is bad. Which by the way, we should talk about that. We're never gonna get to this handout, it'll be next week. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a, such a classic thing. Everything the Catholics do, when I, when I was raised as a Lutheran and then like ex my experiences in college and seminary, when you talk to people, when, when people don't, who don't have like a working understanding of why we do what we do as a Christian church body, if anything that doesn't mesh with what my church experience has been in the last However, however old you are, 25, 30 years. If I haven't done this in 30 years, it's necessarily bad because my church wasn't doing it. And if I saw the Catholics doing it on any TV show or movie I ever watched, making sign on the cross, having a procession on the cross, confessing individual, private confession and absolution, that's a classic one from the movies, right? That's necessarily bad because the Catholics do it. So you probably have no idea about this. This is a secret insider baseball language for the Protestants because the Protestants, they're like, who don't necessarily understand what they believe, they know one thing, we're not Catholic. And so anything that smells or looks Catholic, we're not that, which is a big problem to overcome because there's a lot of very, very good things that the Catholic Church still does to this day. And in fact, the Catholic Church was the, it's just the Christian church. I believe the creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The Athanasian creed, unless you confess the Catholic church, you'll go to hell. Or unless you confess the Catholic faith, you go to hell. Well, Catholic, the Roman, does it say Roman Catholic? Catholic in the sense of Catholic with a little c. 
means, it's from the Greek katahalos, which simply means according to the whole, the whole thing. There's one Christian church on earth, and to be a Christian, we confess the same things about Jesus, the same basic, the Trinity, the triune God and how he delivers that to us. That's the Catholic small c. The Roman Catholic church that we know it to be today started to like evolve, especially in the mid middle ages, and got increasingly worse as we, as we approached the Reformation era. Hence the Reformation it was never meant to actually be a new thing. It was trying to say, we're kind of departing quite a bit from the Lord's word on these things. And it's starting to interfere with people's consciences because we're adding a lot of works to Jesus. So let's try to get back to that. And that ultimately became the, the big division. We know it today popular, popularly as the Protestant Reformation. But there's still lots of very, very good things that the Catholic Church had been doing and they continued to do. And then the church retained, Luther retained. And then uh, over the years, especially as Protestant, Protestants in America became increasingly popular, especially in our experience of Christendom in America is very Protestantized. That is, think Methodists. The Puritans came over, right? So the Puritans were so anti-Catholic that anything that smelled of what we would call sacraments was necessarily evil. Not just wrong, but like evil. So you have an America that's kind of founded in this like anti-sacramental, anti-Catholic presuppositions. And so as Lutheranism comes over and starts to spread, it starts to get these like weird uh, combinations with American Protestantism. And so you have like churches that would have a baptismal font, they would, they'd hide it over in the closet unless there was a baptism. They'd roll out the baptismal font, have a baptism and roll it back into the closet. It's just something that's it's just like a tradition that we do from time to time and roll it away. Which is why when they built this, they decided to put the font in the foundation so no one could roll it away. It was, a, it was an intentional move to build it into the foundation. It's created all kinds of architectural problems. The original design of this baby was supposed to be, this was supposed to be a bridge, like an arc. And you're supposed to come up here, go over the arc, and the water was supposed to be cascading down from the water. Because the idea is that it's, it's living water, it's moving. And so, it's supposed to be moving and cascading, cascading over the font, underneath the bridge, into this pipe thing and cycled back through. But the problem was, first they couldn't get the, the arc to, to actually for, firm up and not break when the foundation started to shift. You know, the kind of a breakdown between, I think the Pastor Rosso, one of the earlier pastors here and the design architecturally wasn't working out. So they just had a hardcore concrete and there's a PVC pipe that runs from underneath here Underneath, so you're technically walking over your baptism. You're walking through the baptismal waters as you approach the altar of the Lord is the, the theological idea behind this. Also, if you turn this water up too much higher, it actually sprays out like a, like a dysfunctional water fountain. So now it's like in a slow drip. Um, anyway, so here, so God's word and whatever God attaches his word to so he takes his word, he, he sticks it on water, and he says to do this, and it's, it, it delivers salvation to you, and that's baptism. And he takes his word, and he attaches it to bread and wine, and he says, do this, it delivers salvation to you, and that's the Lord's Supper. 
But ultimately, the active ingredient, if you will, in the Lord's Supper is still the words of institution. It's not just eating and drinking, but God's word that's about this eating and drinking that's attached to it, right? So it's not just bread and wine, it's God's word with the bread and wine. So here's the distinction that we make. God's, or our salvation was one, one on the cross, but it's not delivered there. It's delivered wherever he wants it to be delivered and however he wants it to be delivered. So if we were there at the cross, I mean, like the passion of the Christ kind of depicts this well, when the guys are flogging Jesus and they're ripping his flesh off and the blood is like splattering all over their face and the guy's like licking it, you know, like classic persecuting Romans would do. They're covered in the blood of Jesus and yet it doesn't save them because that wasn't the way that it's supposed to save them. So God's, God's blood was shed on the cross that's to win salvation, but that he delivers that salvation to us wherever his word is preached and wherever his word is attached to his gifts. So we can, we can understand that we're, we're more covered in the blood of Jesus now than the soldiers who were covered in his blood on the actual cross. You see that distinction? And so wherever this is happening, we call it, church. This is where God is making dead things alive. And by the way, one of the like second graders asked this question this past week in the school and they, they had to phone a friend and had to come down there and answer it. <laughs> what happened to all these guys? Because we make such a big deal about baptism here. What about the people who weren't baptized. Well, obviously everyone goes to hell prior to the cross. No. What's well, the same formula? Salvation was one on the cross. By the way, so Jesus being God, everything that he does, it's kind of this weird thing. Everything he does in creation is also happening eternally. So like Revelation or is it Hebrews? It's Hebrews. Talks about Jesus as the lamb of God who is slain before the foundation of the world. Slain before the foundation of the world. How does that work? Because what happens in history when you're God is also happening in all eternity. So Jesus being crucified in 33 AD has implications for Adam and Eve way back here and all along the way. It was just delivered in a different way. How was it delivered back here? Well, you had the prophets. He actually attached his name back there too, which we'll maybe get to later. But what was the main thing that God did in the Old Testament? There was ultimately always a picture of this anyway. What's the main mechanism that God used to deliver this to all these people? Sacrifice. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve. For Adam and Eve, they go and hide. And then what's God do? He finds them and immediately they're trying to self-justify and cover their own shame. I'm not guilty. She made me do it. And also the fig leaves. And right away, what's God do? He kills a lamb, a sheep, and covers them with animal skin. 
This is quite helpful because think about it from Adam and Eve's perspective. What, there was no death prior to sin. So Adam and Eve, who named the animals? That sheep was spot because he had this one distinctive spot on his, on his back left hip. And he loves Spot. Spot would curl up with Adam at night and keep him warm. It was this beautiful, wonderful relationship. And they'd frolic together in the woods. And then when they fall into sin, now God comes out with Spot on a hanger. But think about what that did for Adam. The, the pain of that is just as significant as you as me taking, taking my little miniature dachshund Maggie and slitting her throat which is why the Passover is so significant because they're actually taking this baby lambs of, without blemish that they had very near and dear to their families were to be slaughtered because that's the significance of our sin. We don't have to pay that death. Jesus pays the death and all the sacrifices that were happening in the Old Testament were ultimately, they were pointing to the cross, but more importantly, they're actually delivering the cross back all along the way. So from Adam and Eve, when they're clothed in the, the animal skin, the animal was sacrificed to forgive their sins. The temple, which isn't even built till later, but the sacrifices are actually happening all along the way. Job, which is the oldest, uh, one of the oldest Old Testament books that we have, he would go to the temple or the, the, the tabernacle or whatever and offer prayers and sacrifices for his own children. If you remember how Job begins, on, because they're, like, they're all like rich frat boys in their 20s. And Job knows that they're gonna be bad. And so he would go to the temple to pray and to have sacrifices, to have the sins forgiven of, the, of his sons in the Old Testament and his daughters too. So the forgiveness of sins is one on the cross and we're gonna keep circling back around this. It's one on the cross, but it's not delivered there. It's delivered wherever God wants it delivered. We're, we call it in the New Testament, we call it sacraments, Old Testament sacrifices but ultimately God's word carrying, the, carrying it through. That's how we find out about anything. Did the Cubs win today? I don't know, you have to tell me, right? But this isn't just news about something else, it's actually news that transforms. It's news that itself gives life because God's word is living and active. In fact, God's word is God. What? Let's talk about it. Look at me, finally getting to the handout. Uh, so life in the gift of the Lord's name. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna run through this just so we can kind of cover some main components here. The Lord's name, or so what is the Lord's name? So from Exodus three, then Moses said to God, if you recall after Moses like kills some random dude and has to flee Egypt and he's like out in the, is it Midian, like tending sheep and he's there singing. He sees the uh, singing, the singing bush is three amigos. Uh, he sees the burning bush and, it, and he confronts, he goes up to the bush and the bush says, take off your shoes, you're, on, you're standing on holy ground, right? He goes up to the bush and, it, and then God through the bush sends him to Egypt to free the people of Israel. And, and then Moses has a good question. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask, what is his name? It's a reasonable question. What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am which is simply the translation of Yahweh. The, the Hebrew word Yahweh is simply the Hebrew phraseology of I am. So think about our English, our English uh, 
our English word of I am. It's like the most, it's the most simple verb that we use to like teach our children, the be verb, right? Being, existence. So God's existence, his being, his presence is his name. It doesn't work that way for us. I can talk about John and his absence and John doesn't appear, but it still kind of does, it can do damage to John. It can build him up. It affects your person, but it is not your person. It's different with God. Where he puts his name, he is. So I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And by the way, notice the different, the weird font there. If you're ever reading in the Old Testament, especially you run across Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's a, that's the translation of the Hebrew Yahweh, which is distinct from Lord, lowercase l, which would be like, and the way Downton Abbey, the, the guys would be like, yes, my Lord, like this of, of respect. So capital L and this I am who I am, it's all caps, all in reference to Yahweh, the divine name, which is significant. In fact, the Hebrews were scared of even using that word out of fear that they would mess it up. So they actually would say different things. That's where Adonai, um, uh, Jehovah. You probably have plenty of Jehovah's Witness stories. None of those yet? Dragu has this fascinating way of coming to me like every week and telling me that he engaged in conversation with some different cult, like every week is a different cult. Or <laughs> like, how do these people are drawn to you like flies? Um, so the Lord's name is more than just a title. It is, it is his being. It is his presence. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 4, this is the best picture we have of, of this playing out. And this is the, the famous prayer of Solomon, which I'm going to read. Uh, let's see. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So he, this is the dedication of the temple. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might dwell there. So now it's talking about it. It's talking about a name as an entity that needs a place to live. That's not how we talk about our names, but this name needs a house. But I chose David to be over my people, Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, all caps, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, flip over. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, all caps, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. 
How much less this piddly little house on earth that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall dwell there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So God who's dwelling up in heaven and heaven's too big to contain him has actually located his name here on earth that we would know that he hears our prayer when the prayers are given in the temple on earth, that God is there for the people, uh, so that people would know that God would hear them and so that God would forgive them their sins. So if I'm an Israelite living in the Old Testament and I'm up in, let's say, uh, Galilee where Jesus was or up near like the, the, the way north, like Nazareth, Jerusalem is further south. So I'm obviously not gonna be going down there all the time. I know God is with me, with my sheep herd and, and my family up in because uh, I belong to the people of Israel. I've been circumcised into the covenant and so forth. But every so often, the Lord requires me to come down to the temple to take part in the sacrifices. But even as an Israelite, like dad, like I know Jesus, I know God is with me. I know he created me and loves me and, 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 I've, and I've received the forgiveness and presence of God. And yet there's something to it where I, I want to be at that temple for the certainty that God has forgiven my sins. So they go and take part in the sacrifices. They buy the whatever they, they got to buy to atone for their sins and the sheep is slain or whatever and they know their sins are forgiven with a certainty because God's name is there at the temple. Now, that's the Old Testament, presence of God on his name. Interestingly though, number six, number four there, where else was his name? Number six, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face sh to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So we end our service. Notice the next phrase, which doesn't make it into, the it doesn't make it into our actual liturgy. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. The blessing of God is attached to the name. That's the benediction that we end every service. So we begin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We end in the name, the same name that was, that was there at the temple. God makes his presence known on earth in the temple. Then verse uh, number five, John one, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this name is some kind of mysteriously disembodied presence in the Old Testament temple has now joined himself to our flesh in the person of Jesus at the incarnation. Incarnation is just a big word for uh, infleshment. For you burrito, Taco Bell fans, So the, the carne asada, the meat burrito. So in meat. So in Jesus, at the incarnation, when Jesus becomes flesh, it is the name of God making himself present in the person of Jesus. And then number six, Jesus ascends into heaven, Matthew 28. Jesus came and says to his church, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, because where I put my name, I promise to be, just like I did at the temple. Where God puts his name, he brings his presence. So this, what used to be this located presence in, in the people of Israel at the temple, they had God's presence with them also up in Nazareth. They had really, God is, that's a, help, a helpful distinction to make. God is everywhere all the time. What's that word? So omnipresent. He is everywhere, but he's not everywhere in mercy. I used to live in Colorado and there was a, you go hiking in the summers and every single year there'd be like, a whole slew of tourists who are struck by lightning at like one o'clock in the afternoon. Because it's just kind of like common sense if you're like a, a townie like we were. You just don't go hiking after a certain point. You get above tree line and you're totally exposed. You're the tallest thing on that mountain. And as these storms come, they, all of a sudden they roll over the, the, the divide and you can't run fast enough. And people are just dying all the time. God was present on that mountaintop but not according to mercy. Luther joked, he's also at the bottom of the ocean. You can swim down there, but you won't find him according to mercy, right? You'll die. He's at the top of the mountain, but you, so if you're looking for God according to his mercy, you look where he has put himself according to mercy. That is here, wherever where he says when, when they hear, when you hear our people's prayer in the temple, hear our prayer and forgive. Here, baptism now saves you. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching, and lo, I am with you always. Take, eat, take, drink for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and the, the, uh, when, he, when Jesus sends out his apostles to forgive sins, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. So he's, he's made himself present everywhere, but he, he specifically locates his name where he wants the forgiveness of sins delivered. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so here we are, right in time as we wrap up our study here. The Lord calls us together in worship to the name. He, we're, we begin with the name that we all bear through holy baptism individually. He calls us together, promising to be among us because his name is here. He delivers his forgiveness here according to his name. And then as we finish the service with the benediction, he sends us out into the world to serve in our various different vocations, whether it be our job, our families. We have so many different roles that we play in our life. We bear God's name on us. You can't see it. And yet it's there. He's promised to be with us. And what does that name then mean? Well, most importantly, where there is the name of God, there is who? God, Jesus. And where Jesus is, interesting things start happening. When you think back in your Bible, when Jesus walks around in the New Testament, he, he never once, make sure I get that right. Yeah. He never once walks past a dead body that doesn't come back to life. Think about that. He never walks past a demon that doesn't get ticked off and try to attack him and then run away. The demons flee, death flees, forgiveness is jumping out of Jesus. He can't help himself. And that's the presence of God that's with me as I walk around this world facing temptation, sin, death, and the devil. I have this promise of his presence with me always overcoming all these things. 
So he calls us together to that name. We bear that name. And every time that name comes up in, in, in the service, like depending on when it is, we'll make the sign of the cross if you so choose to remember like in holy baptism, we take the baby, receive the sign of the cross, both upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Simply symbolic, marking them with the cross. So we're, we're, we've been saved by this cross, we're marked by this cross. We remember that we're baptized, that we bear God's name when we make the sign of the cross. So Luther says, when you wake up in the morning, you go to bed at the night, you make the sign of the cross. And so the, the weird Catholic thing is when people make a sign of the cross all the time when bad stuff's about to happen, it's actually not a bad idea. When bad stuff's about to happen, what better thing to cling to than the Lord of life? So don't make the sign of the cross, I mean, whatever. Jesus never said to do it, but the idea is to remember that I'm baptized. Also physically in worship, I mean, the pastors do it. We're trying to teach the acolytes to do it. Whenever the Gloria is sung, glory he be to the Father and to the Son. Whenever the... the Gloria is, is sung or spoken in the service will bow out of reverence to the Trinity. Most importantly, to teach the significance of the name, the presence of God. So little kids ask, why is Pastor Bending over funny? Oh, because that's the name of God. Why does that matter? Now we're talking. You know, get your kids asking that name. That's why we do it. So we have opportunity to teach the significance of the Lord's name. So that's the kind of the last, the bold questions there at the bottom. The, the name's popping up in the Lord's service all the time. Uh, we've talked about what it means for you to bear the name. And oh, yeah, the last one's important. So annoyingly, you might find it to be annoying. Maybe you don't care. Whenever church ends, if I had my druthers, is that a thing, druthers? What are druthers, Dragu? I don't even know it. If I had my druthers, my way, I had no idea. When church, when church ends, what me and what I like to do is just walk out to music and go to, ba go to Bible study. And then anybody who wants to find out what's happening in Bethany, come to Bible study. And I'll talk about that in there. So that's coming down the pipe, by the way. I hate talking here in front of people. It's like pastor unplugged five minutes is just waiting for me to put my foot in my mouth. And it, it changes the nature of this room to like, I can't help myself. I'm always joking around. It kind of kills the reverence. What happens here is significant. I like to distinguish fun goofing around pastor time from what the Lord is doing here. In any case, uh, we have to, we make announcements, right? So welcome to Bethany. Thanks for bringing us the uh, Stick around for Oktoberfest. Subscribe to the week at a glance. Confirmation starts this week. The new member class is starting. All the things that I wanted you to, to hear about. Then when I'm done with that, I could just walk away. That would be awkward. I could say, by. Uh, for a long time, I, I mentioned this in Bible class a couple weeks ago too, I know, but like for people used to say like, go, uh, go in peace, serve the Lord. That's a comment. Go in peace, serve the Lord. And then like the specific traditional history here at this congregation was an overreaction to, I don't want to send my people out thinking they have to do something. I want to send them out in freedom. So go in peace, you are free problem with that was it sounded like I was dismissing people from bondage. Go in, you can now leave church, you're free. You've been in prison in church prior to now, but now you can leave. So that, so, I'm, so here I am like at this church, I get an opportunity to, to change what we're saying. I'm like, this is all silly. Um, let's just walk out. No, I wasn't allowed to do that. So instead we're going to say, we, we leave here bearing God's name, which means we face God, we face death, we face sin. I serve 
in my marriage, in my family, with to my children. Wherever God places me, God is with me, which means my sins are forgiven, death runs, the devil flees, and all that promises. So we go forth in our Lord's name. Thanks be to God. That's why we say that silly little thing, because I have to say something, and that seems to make sense. And it's, it's contextual when you think about the baptism. We start with baptism, we end with baptism. And that name of God is going to come up all the time uh, in the service. So this, I challenge you this week, um, as you look at the, um, the divine service in your bulletin, um, as you're walk, walking through, just notice. You make a little tally of how many times God's name pops up. It's all over the place. Of course it's going to be all over the place. Because where he puts his name, he, puts, he joins his presence to that. It's very significant. Any questions on today? Threw a lot at you. I never didn't think I actually finished that handout, Beth. Look at that. It's like speed mode, reading through Solomon there. Uh, I, I need to, maybe next week, help me remember to bring a, an actual outline so I remember what I'm supposed to talk about. We always circle around. I think we're hitting baptism again next week, but most importantly, next week, we're back to Wednesdays. So thanks for enduring Thursdays. There are a few, oh, you got it. What was the other thing I was supposed to talk about today? No, you hit it all. I hit it all? Look at that, invocation, death to life. Look at that, ha, good. Uh, so next, what am, I, what am I supposed to talk about next week while I'm thinking about it? Oh, good. Oh, very good. How, so this is gonna get at like a lot of the denominational differences. How is it you guys drove past 25 churches to get here? And wh- why are there so many differences? How do, so what's the significance of the inspiration of God's word and how it plays out in these um, in different church bodies. So we'll talk more about that. And that really starts to get at a lot of our different backgrounds where we came from and how we ended up where we are individually in this group. Let's, uh, let's close. Are there no other questions? Are you good? Yeah. So Yahweh is Hebrew. It means I am. And I am sounds very Because they didn't pick it. So think about it, flip it around. Our understanding of being comes from who God is. So we're made in his image. So it's not that, it's not that God was trying to put his name into something we can understand, but our entire existence comes from who he is. And so when, when, they, when he gives us his name, he's, he's telling us his name is being. I, I am, I am existence, I am being. Um, which is part of the shockingness then in the New Testament when they ask, when Jesus says to, to the Pharisees, I am who I am, I think it's John 8, and the guys like pick up stones to stone him. That's Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. Um, when they go to arrest him in the garden, he says, I am, I am he, and they all fall back. This name brings this powerful existence. By the way, the same name is present not in the name, the, 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 the limited vocables Yahweh, but the name of God is present at creation. That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think about at, at the creation. Uh, when, so in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1, and there was, the, the world was without form and void. The Hebrew there, tohu vabohu, which is really fun. I named my first son tohu vabohu. Formless and void, that's probably not the most inspirational name. Anyway, uh, God, so God is there. The, the, it said the spirit is hovering over the waters, spirit. And then God speaks. Which member of the Trinity is that? God the Father, traditionally associated with God, speaks. And he says what? The first words out of God's mouth in the Bible? Let there be light. Let there be light and there was light, right? Where's Jesus? Now, is, has the Trinity, all, has, has Jesus always been? Is he eternal? Yes, he didn't come into existence at the incarnation. I keep flipping the, can I just pretend it's back? Incarnation, he didn't come into existence. All he did was what? Came into the flesh. Prior to that, he just wasn't in our flesh, but he existed, he, he is eternal. That's the thing we keep saying in the creed over and over and over again in the, uh, the uh, Athanasian creed, uh, without beginning, without end, so forth. So where's Jesus at creation? No, not light. That's a great instinct, though. God spoke, let there be light. The word itself, which is the significance then, and the, and the counterpart to Genesis 1 is John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when God speaks, it is Jesus, which then is the significance of what God is doing when he has his word proclaimed, Old and New Testament. Timothy says, and, and Paul says in Timothy, God's word is living and active, sharper, sharper than any two-edged sword, but God's word is doing stuff. Going back to the necros uh, or the valley of dry bones with Ezekiel. So we've got a whole group of dead, decomposed soldiers that Ezekiel just speaks to and they come back to life. How is that possible? Because God's word actually brings God and God brings life. So where God wants life to happen, life happens. Uh, so that's the, the whole Trinity is there at creation, but then he, but he isn't making himself known as the, the vocables Yahweh until Moses asked. Um, a good question. I don't know if I answered it, but I talked for a while. That was nice. Well, so in the temple, that's a, great, that's a great connection. Okay, so in the temple is the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, right? And on top of the, on top of the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, you've got two cherubim or seraphim, cherubim, whatever, angels on either side and their wings are like touching, right? And what that thing on top where the angels touch and the, and the Ark and the Ten Commandments are underneath, what's that thing called? The what seat? The mercy seat. Where once a year in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the temple, there'd be a, a bull sacrificed and the blood was put on the, the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of all the people. That word, the Hebrew word for mercy seat is the, is the, is the same word as it comes into the Greek for um, 
Ah, the, uh, I never say it right. And I was, this would have, I would sound a lot more eloquent if this word would have been on the tip of my tongue. The propitiation. Propitiation. Like, what is propitiation? You remember that when it comes up in the lectionary reading a few times from like, I think it's in Romans. And it's like, half the time I mispronounce it when I'm trying to read it. And I'm like, I'm even focusing on not saying all, all, that, all that word is, it's the word for mercy seat. It's the propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the mercy seat. He is the blood that covers. And interestingly, what's inside that Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, which call out the sin that we have. So the Ten Commandments, are they're exposing our sin. And in the mercy seat, or on the mercy seat is the blood of the bull that's covering the, the transgressions against the Lord's law, which is ultimately, that blood is pointing toward, this blood is pointing toward the sacrifice is coming. Then at the death of Jesus, what happens in the temple? Well, he's dying on the cross at Golgotha. What's happening in Jerusalem? The curtain was ripped in two, but top to bottom, which is significant, right? So now this dividing between the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could go into once a year, is now separated because now Jesus is the priest, the great high priest, as Hebrews would say. Jesus is this intermediary. Now there's not an, intermediate, not an intermediary needed. Jesus is our direct connection with the divine. He's referring to himself as the temple, to your, to your point, destroy this temple, me, in three days, and I will restore it. And they, they wanted to stone him because they thought he was talking about the actual temple, right? And the temple was ultimately destroyed. But he's talking about the temple of himself, which, which is holding God's name. It is God's name. Destroy this. That's a good point. That's a good connection. So he put his name in the temple in the Old Testament, and he puts, he, the name becomes incarnate, and he refers to himself as the temple. Which is what, even at the time of Jesus, you start to see this shift from the, the exclusive presence of God in the temple to where Jesus is. And a few people got it. Can you think of an example of some of the people that got it? I can think of one. I know it's more because I've given this lecture before, but the, the most, maybe most memorable would be the the Thanksgiving reading, the healing of the, the 10 uh, lepers. And do you remember how he says, go and show yourself to the priest? Go to, go to the temple to be cleansed. And they still got leprosy and they all get up to go. And what happens? One, the, the Samaritan of all, comes back and Jesus says, where are the nine? So the, the one Samaritan recognized the merciful presence of God is no longer in the temple. Why go there? Jesus is here. The temple is now here. And so now people are coming to Jesus and it's almost like he would, Jesus is still sending people to the temple to, to follow the law, but it's, he's, no longer, he's no longer bound by the law in the same way because he's fulfilling the law. He's, he is the fulfillment of the law. And so Jesus walk around forgiving sins, which is the very thing the temple is supposed to do, which is why it's so super duper, <laughs> who says that? Uh, I don't know where that came from. Uh, super duper um, terrible when, when um, Judas goes to the, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, 
when he, when he feels the remorse for, for betraying Jesus, remember what he, so his instinct was right. So he feels the remorse, I've done the wrong thing. He brought the silver back and he went to the priests who are the very people who are supposed to be delivering the forgiveness of sins to Judas and they send him away. So that's the opposite of what the church is supposed to be doing. And yet it happens all the time when, when the forgiveness of sins is closed off from the repentant, from the remorseful. So the tragic picture there. Great, great questions. Anything else? We're over time. So let's, uh, if you wouldn't mind, we, we, I got my little hand out here. We'll close with um, Luther's evening prayer again. Uh, if you guys, if you need another devotion, or another, you know, pass it out. The more we can carpet bomb the congregation with the congregation at prayer, the better. So Luther's evening prayer is on the back of the congregation at prayer. If you're able to make it to the Sunday Bible class, we're working through Luke. Uh, we're on Luke 12, I believe. This coming Sunday is Luke 14. I get to preach the next two weeks in a row. I'm like, kid in a candy store. I get to teach, preach, teach new, teach new member classes. Like, this is, where the, this is why you do the job. Let's, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day, and I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong, and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Lord be with you. Have a good evening. Wednesday next week.